Okay. So welcome, guys. Um, thank you for coming. Thank you for joining. Today we're doing... What are we doing? We're doing only one book. So we're doing First Timothy. Um, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to First Timothy. And um, if you've been here, you know the rules. If, you've, if it's your first time joining us, the rule is if there are no rules. Feel free to stop me. Feel free to ask any questions. Um, this is a place for it's a safe space. So if you disagree, if you have any comments, different opinion, questions, please feel free to stop. <coughs> so, yeah, um, tonight we're doing First Timothy because and we're not doing it with another book. We're only focusing on this because I think it's it's got a lot of um, it, it deals with. Yes, there are no rules. It deals with a, a lot of uh, important things, important issues. Um, in this day and age that we're living, right? Well, every part of scripture deals with that, but I think it's more relevant to us in just understanding the church. You know, why are there certain rules? Why is this allowed? Why is this not allowed? Why do we do things the way we do, right? And hopefully we'll see that not only today, but also on Thursday when we look at Second Timothy as well as Titus, right? So we're looking at, uh, so this week we're doing First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus, and that is what is known as the pastoral epistles, right? So starting with Timothy, um, the word pastor comes from shepherd. So pastor means to shepherd. And these three books are called the pastoral epistles, not because they are written um, as a pastor to a flock, but because they are written to pastors who then have to look after the churches. And Timothy and Titus were pastors at churches. Timothy is in Ephesus. And you can see that in verse 4 of chapter 1. Ephesus was Ephesus is a very important city in the region of Asia Minor. So the Apostle John was also an elder there at that church in that area at some time. Probably not the same time as Timothy. So it is an important place. And we learn a lot about Timothy from these letters. Titus was a pastor on the island of Crete. So we will see that Crete was a difficult place to be a pastor. It was a poor area, very rough place, but it was necessary for the gospel to go there, right? The gospel needs to go out to every area, whether it's the suburbs or the ghetto, right? All regions. First Timothy is written around AD 60 um, and Titus as well around the same time. And we'll see on, in Second Timothy, Second Timothy is actually Paul's last letter. So it is his final letter. He's at the end of his life. And we will look at some verses there that will show us that he's about to die. And, and Paul even knows that he's about to die. So because of that, we date 1 Timothy and Titus to just after Paul's first capture in Rome. So he's captured and then put into a Roman jail. He's then released and then he's taken back into jail later on. And then after that, he's put to death under Nero. So that is around AD 65 or so. So if you look at chapter 1, turn to chapter 1, um, you see there is a special relationship between Paul and Timothy. Verse 2 says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. So Timothy is like a son to Paul. And what do we learn about Timothy in these letters? Timothy is a young man. He's part of a church in a very important city. And he's called to pastor there. But he is young and he's not bold. He's not dynamic. He's not charismatic. He seems to be very gentle and meek. He seems to be easily intimidated. 
He even gets ashamed of Paul and the Lord Jesus at times. He battles with physical weakness. Paul will tell him to, to take medicine and some wine for his stomach. So he isn't a super dynamic, healthy and strong guy. He's not the kind of guy who walks into a room and everyone notices. You know, you don't get that impression with Timothy. And yet, this very simple, unimpressive young man is called to pastor this church in a very important area. And Paul is saying, this is what you need to do. Don't let anyone despise your youth. You need to be an example. So how are you going to win them over? Be the best example of what it means to be a Christian. Show them what it looks like to honor Christ and to serve him. And you're going to have to deal with false teachers. You'll have to confront it and stop it. So Paul is really encouraging this young pastor who has all these complexities and all these issues. Uh, this is a reminder to us that uh, it's, it's not human wisdom in the call to ministry. Many churches have fallen into the trap where a person is made an elder. They made a, they've, they're given a, a position. They made a pastor, a, a leader in the church when they are successful in the financial world or they are successful in the political sphere or if you achieve something great or if you look the part, if you dress the part, then they'll make you an elder. Sometimes someone is made a pastor because they are the children or the relatives of a pastor, right? You've seen celebrities and famous people who are invited to church to, to preach or even become pastors. At that time, you don't even know if they're saved or not. So this is a helpful reminder that for someone to become a pastor, it is a calling. It is God calling someone to the ministry. It is not due to external achievement or due to looks or personality or eloquence and how well someone speaks. So Paul greets Timothy and he talks about these false teachers. So look at verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God, that is, by faith. So he tells Timothy which people to deal with. And then in verse 12, we see that what is key to Paul is the gospel. So verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord had overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So Paul says he is the foremost of sinners. It's interesting that he uses the present tense. He doesn't say he was the foremost of sinners. It is right now. I am the chief sinner at this very moment. For those who think once you become a Christian, you are perfect. You are the finished product. This is, this is a verse that they should take note of. The Lord has saved Paul. He was made an apostle. He has been in the ministry for nearly 30 years. Imagine the levels of sanctification this man has been through, and yet he's still able to say, I am the foremost of sinners, right? There's an acknowledgement of, even now, I still sin. Paul is a sinner, but, verse 16, I have received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Christ, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So, he's also an example. Paul is an example to any person that salvation is possible. 
so that any person would know that if they come and repent, they will be saved. Because could there be anything worse than killing Christians, right? What sin could be worse than that, right? You may be a horrible thief, but have you murdered Christians? You may be a serial adulterer. You have multiple affairs. But how many Christians have you murdered, right? How many have you been going around blowing up churches? Well, the guy the Lord used the most did those very things, right? He went around persecuting, uh, killing Christians. So you can have hope that you are definitely not beyond his mercy. And that is what Paul is saying here. I am an example of the mercy and grace of God. The very guy who used to go around murdering Christians is now the great apostle. And then in verse 17, Paul, as he often does when he talks about something that gets him passionate and excited, he breaks out into praise. It says in verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So he breaks out into praise and he praises God for who he is. Right. And then chapter 2, verse 1, he says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So this is very important. Here's what needs to be done in the church. Right. Timothy, this is how the church needs to operate. It needs to be a place of prayer. So Jesus says, my house will be called a house of prayer. So we need to be men and women of prayer. And what should we pray for? We should be praying for all people. And as we go through this, we will see that he doesn't mean all people without exception. Right? We are not, we're not going to go through a list of all 8 billion people on the planet and be praying for them. He's saying all kinds of people, right? all types of people. Be praying for all kinds of people. Our tendency is to pray for people like ourselves. People like us, especially in, a, in, a, in an oppressive society, you wouldn't be praying for the oppressor or you wouldn't be praying for your boss who is not paying you fairly or the government regime run by a dictator, right? But Paul is saying we need to pray for all kinds of people. And he says, including kings. So look at verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So pray for all types of people, but especially for rulers, because rulers affect our lives. And then we will be able to live peaceful lives, quiet, quiet lives. And this is an important verse because you may have heard pastors or Christians say what the church re needs right now is persecution. Right? This is what we need to separate the goats from the sheep, to separate the wheat from the chaff, the real Christians from the fake. But the Bible never says that in any way. The Bible says the opposite, right? Don't pray for suffering and persecution. Instead, pray and ask God for a peaceful life. Pray for our leaders that the Lord will save them so that they will make good laws and govern well so that we can live peaceful life. And it's very true that, it's very true that when life becomes very comfortable, our tendency is, is in our sinful nature to start to compromise. And then to really make this earth our home, right? We can forget that we are sojourners. We become too attached to the things of this world. And when that happens, then the Lord may in his providence send persecution. But persecution is not always going to cause Christians to wake up. It's not always going to cause the church to thrive. Persecution at times has eradicated the church and destroyed it. It can't always be a good thing, right? Sometimes... The church grows exponentially during persecution. 
sometimes it's demolished it's completely eradicated and so don't ask the lord for uh to send persecution don't pray for that it, it sounds you know pietistic it sounds uh, holy in a sense but it's, it's unbiblical what we should be asking the lord is to give us peace so that we can lead godly lives now one of the things that you'll pick up reading paul's letters is that the world is watching right in pastoral epistles paul is incredibly concerned with the testimony of the church to the outside world we've seen paul say this is how you behave wives this is how you behave husbands this is how you behave masters this is how you behave this is how the church should be structured and what elders and deacons should be like and this is so that the world doesn't look at us and think these christians are crazy right christians are mad people paul is concerned about what the world thinks because the world is looking at the church and churches should be a testimony to the world so that the world can see the beauty and joy of obeying and submitting to god sadly the exact opposite has happened it's happened because churches do not obey these pastoral epistles there is disobedience there are women preaching there's chaos in churches and then the people calling that and then there's people calling that chaos the work of the holy spirit right there's there's breakdown in marriages there's corruption the men who lead the pastors or the elders are not qualified uh people have bad doctrine and they are and they divide and split churches people are told to eat grass to to drink petrol to spray doom on their faces there's sexual abuse and so people look and they say you christians are crazy what kind of cult is this people are brainwashed you you can't think for yourself you know or whatever else you've heard from the world whereas if the church had everything done decently and in order remember that's what paul says in first corinthians chapter 14 he says let all things be done decently and in order in the church and if things were done with structure and christians behave with dignity when we behave well it is a testimony to the world this is what our god is like he is dignified he is holy he is a god of order right we are not crazy idiots that is why paul is dealing with these things all these issues that you find in the books we pray for leaders that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life and verse 3 he says this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth for there is one god and there is one mediator between god and men the man jesus christ who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time i desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling so what did men fight with before guns came along it was with their hands right it was with their fists if you have holy hands the idea here is what are you using your hands for you were using them as instruments of anger and quarreling instead use them as instruments of worship use your body to worship the lord right lift up holy hands then he says verse 9 likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works so with men the issue is anger with the women it is modesty he deals with how ladies should dress when we get to peter in first peter it says 
Don't let your adorning be uh, be jewelry and braided hair, etc. Peter's not saying in that passage that women can't wear jewelry or have braided hair because if you take that literally and you interpret the passage consistently, then women can't wear clothing either, right? And then we have a bigger problem. What Paul is saying is that specifically when you come together to worship, what are your intentions? Are you as a lady saying, I want people to see me, to notice me when I walk in, and so the focus is on me and not the not on the Lord, or... Or, or do you want people to focus on the Lord? Because immodesty plays a big role in that, right? Sometimes ladies do know the influence they have on a man, but they continue in that, and that is really sinful. But most ladies don't realize what men are like. Are men just a bunch of perverts? Yes, pretty much. And that is sadly due to our sin nature. So if you realize that, that these are my brothers in the Lord, do I want to stumble my brothers and be a distraction to their worship of the Lord Jesus? The answer should be no. So let me dress respectably, respectably and modestly. Also, dress modestly because it is what is commanded in Scripture. In some cultures, you, you go into some churches, you walk in, and church is a fashion show. Sunday has, has become a fashion show. It is all about me and how I dressed. Uh, the car that I arrive in, right? It is all drawing attention from the Lord. And Paul says, stop that. And then we get to a passage that only in the last maybe 50 years has become controversial. So it says in verse 11, verse 11, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Eve, and sorry, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So up until, you know, the last 50, 60 years, this passage was very clearly understood, right? Formal preaching of God's word and the leadership of the church to be an elder or a pastor is a calling only for men. It's only in the rise of the feminist movement and with radical feminism continuing to grow that you see a push for women to be pastors and for them to preach from the pulpit. The irony of that is feminists and in that ideology, it says whatever men can do, women can do. So what they're actually doing is they are not making women more feminine. They are making them more masculine, right? It's funny because in essence, what they say is, Men are terrible, so let's be like them, right? But it's, that, is, that is a terrible bondage and slavery that they are putting women in. It's also pathetic, right? Women are terrible at being men because God has not created them for that purpose. Feminism does not enable women to be better women or to liberate them to be more godly women. It is enslaving them. It's another deception of the daughters of Eve in a long list of deceptions. Feminists don't need to be told that they despise men. They generally know that. And even when they don't, they have certainly heard it before, you know, at least from people like me. What they haven't heard very much is how much they despise women, right? Because if you love women, you tell them the truth. That's, that's what the Bible says. You know, if you love someone, then you tell them the truth. To lie to someone about who God has created them to be and what femininity looks like is not to love them. To keep them in error is to despise them. 
that's if you keep someone in error then you do not love them um, the best example of this is satan the devil hates you and i right he hates god's people and so how does he try to destroy them through lies right he is the great deceiver and these lies are prevalent in the culture in western society and so it has impacted the church because in the church biblically and historically it was known that men are to be elders in the church and so this whole cultural view has affected the church and now the church is compromising to fit in with the culture we are compromising because we are afraid to be called names <laughs> you're afraid to be called sexist or bigoted or unloving whatever the case may be and it's the same thing that has happened with other topics other issues with homosexuality transgenderism um, the whole gender pronouns thingy etc etc right now when it comes to to this this topic right there are there are mainly two views and you might have heard these words before you might have heard of egalitarianism and complementarianism right so egalitarianism um, the word egalite means equality and that is the feminist idea we are equal in every way what they're really saying is we are equal in every way except for plumbing except for our bodies which is ridiculous because there are huge differences between men and women that go beyond just our bodies but there are some churches that believe in this and so anything is open to everyone right you want to be a, a female pastor sure we're all the same we are all equal complementarianism is a more biblical view right and i'd argue that complementarianism still isn't quite there you know uh, in terms of a uh, biblical view but that's a topic for another day this view says that we are different right we are very different but god has made us this way to complement one another right men and women complement one another we have different callings as men and women different giftings and roles that complement one another if we try and do the same thing there's going to be a clash and there's going to be a breakdown in society and is that what is happening at the moment definitely right you see it all you see it all over the place um, there are men identifying as women there are women identifying as men in a lot of female sports there have been a lot of records being broken recently like if you follow olympic powerlifting or running cycling right these there are records being broken by transgender men transgender men are competing with women and they are beating them hands down you know it's crazy it's, it's actually really sad it's very tragic that uh, this is what it's come to if god has made you a man what a beautiful and glorious thing right what a gift god has called you to be a godly man God has made you a woman. What a beautiful and glorious thing. What an amazing thing. God has called you to do things that glorify God in your femininity. Together, they complement one another in marriage, in society, in the church. So it has nothing to do with men are more valuable than women. Men are better. Men are, are better at things and women are better at other things. Right. We are good at the things that God has created us to be good at. Right, God has given us a nature. When you act according to your nature, you flourish. Nature reveals that to us. That women are to submit to their husband is a gift and a blessing because the wife gets to be like Christ, who submitted to the Father. 
Was Jesus Christ less God because he submitted? Is he not equal to God the Father? No. Jesus is fully God as much as the Father is and as much as the Holy Spirit is. Likewise, a wife submitting does not make her less human or less in the image of God than the husband is. You submit to your boss, right, or your lecturer or your parents, but that does not make you less than them in any way. Paul comes and he says, women are not allowed to teach because that was what, what was already happening in the church. Remember, he's writing to correct a few things that were, ha- that were happening. It was happening in the church and Paul says no. So some argue that this command is cultural, right? This command that women should not uh, teach or have authority over men. They say it was only for that time. It was a specific issue in that specific church that Paul was dealing with. They say that it was this specific group of uneducated women who were teaching. And so Paul was basically rebuking them and they've been rebuked and now it's done and dusted, right? And so they say that, they say that so that, Today, they can justify having uh, women preaching. But in scripture, have we seen things that are cultural? We have. Think of 1 Corinthians. Think of head coverings, right? The principle behind it is not cultural, but head coverings are, right? What What is the principle behind head coverings? It's submission, right? That is something we must obey even today. We might not wear head coverings, but we are to submit. What about the passage that says that we should greet one another with the holy kiss? If you do that today, you're probably going to go to prison for sexual harassment, right? But that was cultural. In that culture, they would greet one another with the holy kiss. The principle there is greet one another warmly and with affection. Show love for one another. So we still do that. We should still do that. We should obey it, right? Why not kiss? Thank the Lord. But you can give someone a handshake, give them a hug, give them a fist bump, whatever it is to show that you are warmly and affectionately greeting your brother or sister in the Lord. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. We don't go around washing each other's feet and thank the Lord for that because some of you, well, Jesus tells us the principle which is to serve one another, right? So there are cultural things that we don't do, but we should practice the principle, right? We still serve one another. We still show warmth and affection to one another. We still submit. Now, how do we know that 1 Timothy verse 12 is, uh, chapter 2 verse 12 is not cultural? And if it's not cultural, then what is the principle that we are to be following here? So the good thing is that we don't have to sit and guess because Paul tells us. He explains the reason for the command for women not to teach in the church. So first he says, verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. The command is that women are to be learners, to be disciples, but they are to do so with a demeanor of submission. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. So there is an absolute restriction. The apostle then prohibits women from being teachers or exercising authority over men in the church. And then the reasons follow, verse 13. For, so remember the word for is because. So um, the first he gives a statement, verse 12, and now he's explaining it. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Paul goes back to creation for the reason, right? 
what what culture do Adam and Eve belong to? Right, this is before any culture. So you can't come and say this is a cultural mandate if Paul is going to outside of culture to how God created things in the beginning to to explain why we should why we should obey a command, right? And so he says this is why, right? He goes back to uh, the creation ordinance before the fall and how God had established the world. Paul says, when the church gathers and the setting is corporate, so this is corporate worship, women are not allowed to teach. In that setting, women are to remain quiet and are not allowed to be elders. It is because Adam was created first and then Eve. There is an order in creation. The man was created first and then the woman. And that order has a bearing. It has an outworking, not only in society and in the marriage, but also in the church, right? There is a hierarchy in creation and God has ordered his church consistently with the rest of his creation. That is one reason, okay? Paul gives two reasons, one theological and one practical. So the theological reason is, um, um, is, is, is the Genesis one, right? That if women rule in the church, this is an attempt to subvert the creation order. God made Adam first and then Eve. The man was made for, no, the man was not made for the woman, but the woman for the man. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says. The second and more practical reason is in verse 14. And he says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Eve was deceived. Think all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right? Satan deceived Eve. He tricked her. So she didn't really know what she did was wrong, right? Otherwise, she wouldn't have been deceived. It would just be plain transgression. But Adam was not deceived. Adam understood perfectly what was happening and he stood by and allowed it to happen. Adam is the representative of the human race. When we fell, we fell because of Adam's sin, not Eve, right? The blame is put on Adam. So when we go back to Genesis chapter 3, the Lord gives curses and the curses are gender specific. He says, ladies, in your sinful nature, you will want to be in control, right? Men, in your sinful nature, you will either be abusive or you will be absent from your responsibilities, right? The man will abdicate from his responsibility instead of leading like the Lord has called him to lead, which is to lead in a sacrificial way. So what Paul is getting at is this. Ladies are more open to deception than men. Given the fact that they are more likely to be deceived, this means they are more likely to pass such deceptions onto the congregation. And the reason for this is that women are more emotionally sensitive than men. Right? It's not politically correct for me to say so, but it's true. Women are more affected by their emotions than men are. So he's not saying women cannot preach or teach because women are idiots right and this is not supposed to be taken by us as one of those insane restrictions that god placed on us in order to test our faith somehow god has to establish an order and it's consistent with our natures as well men are called to lead sacrificially starting in the home and then in the church right there's a requirement and you'll see this in in chapter three there's this requirement of a pastor to be one who is able to manage his household well in order to qualify for ministry. That cannot apply to a woman because she's not the head of the home and so cannot be a manager of the household, right? So for people to write off this passage, it is simple disobedience. 
and people will come up to you and downplay it or cast it off as this and that. And the reason why I'm expounding so much on this is because of the time we are living in, right? And you must be armed for the lies and the twisting of God's word that you'll witness with regards to this, sub, with, to this topic, with regards to women, women preaching. So women are forbidden from preaching. A pastor's wife is just the wife of a pastor. Right? She is not a co-pastor. She is not a deputy pastor. She is not to preach. She is not called to the ministry. If a woman says she is called to preach, uh, she feels called to preach or to pastor into a church. I will say with full confidence that that is not the Holy Spirit she is not listening to because the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself in his word. The same goes for a man who does not meet the qualifications of an elder. Right. So, and lastly, we will know true freedom, true liberty when we fulfill our calling from the Lord, when we obey God. You notice how um, the gay movement preaches liberty and freedom. Feminism preaches liberty and freedom. But they are slaves to sin. And whenever uh, people who are in bondage to sin, whenever slaves preach, they only know how to preach more slavery. Right? That is, that, is, that is a simple fact of the matter. There's only one place to find true liberty. True freedom is found in Christ. True freedom is found in the forgiveness of sins. And that is only found in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so, if you don't have that, if you still carry around with you the debt of your sins, you are still a slave. And what the world is selling you with their ideologies and their teachings is in fact a new set of shinier gold chains to be bound by, right? But Christ is true liberty, not this ideology, not this, that ideology. It's only found in Christ. Christ is sufficient, right? Christ is all that you need. So if you then look at verse 15, verse 15 of chapter 2 says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So this is a very famous famously difficult passage or verse to to interpret and deal with so i'll just give you guys my 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 view on it my interpretation and then um, maybe we can come back to this at the end of the, the session because i'm also keen to hear what you guys think of this right so um after chapter 14 sorry verse 14 he says yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control so how i see this is is, is that God's plan for women is to be sanctified through childbearing, right? If I was going to summarize that in a sentence. And the reason why I say that is, if you look at the second part of that sentence, right? It says, if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control, what do those characteristics tell us? Those are fruits of the Spirit, right? And so, uh, verse 14 if you, if you just build slowly through those three verses, verse 14, we see the fall, right? He speaks about how Adam, um, I'm sorry, Eve was deceived and she became a transgressor. So there's the fall in verse 14 and the effect of it. And what is the effect of Eve's sin? If you, if you think back to Genesis 3.15, the main uh, one that stands out amongst others is her pain shall be greatly multiplied in childbearing, right? It is a curse on women, Yet she will be saved. So the word therefore saved is, we know it doesn't refer to salvation because 
salvation is only found in Christ. The world, the word there, I think it's it's sozo in the Greek, um, means to be preserved. So you can take it as sanctifying, meaning to be sanctified. She will be saved. She will be preserved through the trial of childbearing if she is of the faith, if she is a believer continuing in faith and love and holiness, etc., etc. Right. So um, that's that's just my my thesis of that verse. We can get back to it at the end of that. So. Um, I'm very keen to hear what you guys think think that means. So let's just go to chapter 3 and uh, get to the rest of this book. So if you turn to chapter 3, verse 1, Paul goes into the qualifications for an elder, the qualifications for a pastor in the church. So he says, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, right, which is an elder, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a, not a lover of money. Right. So just by those qualifications, so many pastors, so many so-called pastors are disqualified in the ministry, should not be pastors. Verse 4, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with deceit, with conceit, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and, not, and, let, sorry, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So we will look more in depth when we uh, at these qualifications when we look at Titus uh, because these are very important because women are not qualified to be pastors. Elders in the ch- uh, they're not qualified to be pastors or elders in the church, but there's also men excluded from that position, right? And sadly there's been more damage done from unqualified men being in the pulpit than women being uh, being in the pulpit, right? But we'll look at these on Thursday. Now, um, if you look at chapter 4, and what you learn is in First and Second Timothy, Paul speaks about what is going to happen in the end, in the last days, right? So he says, chapter 4, verse 1, if you turn there, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So if you think about it, are there any groups who forbid marriage? So immediately to me, the Catholic Church comes to mind, right? It's so obvious. It's so clear. What is going to happen in the last days? 
there's going to be liars who forbid marriage. There's also those who require abstinence from foods. And there are plenty of people, there are plenty of groups that call themselves Christian. Uh, the ZCC, I think, uh, as well as the Seventh-day Adventist, right? Uh, they forbid, they forbid, they require abstinence from foods. Uh, Roman Catholics and Anglicans don't eat fish on Fridays in some instances. So there's, there's nothing wrong with abstaining from certain foods. There's nothing wrong with being vegetarian. If you don't feel like eating any certain food, then that is fine. But don't think you are more holy than someone because of what you eat. Don't think you are more holy than someone because of what you don't eat or don't drink. And don't try force it on, other, on any other people. Because when you start to make laws about these things, what are you actually doing? You are devoting yourself to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Verse 4, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So food is set apart for us. When you start to think about food in that way, that it is made holy, set apart by prayer and the word of God, it's not this mundane thing that we just have to make and eat every day, right? Because whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink, you do it to the glory of God. It says, verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. So do you want to be godly? Do you want to live holy? Well, then it's going to take work, right? Training and exercise. Verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So exercise is good, right? Exercise is amazing. Exercise is valuable, but it doesn't compare to training yourself in godliness. Our bodies are finite, but our souls are eternal. And so holy living has eternal benefits. It has benefits and blessings, not only in the new heavens and the new earth, but even right now in this life. That's what Paul says. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Remember, Timothy is young. So there were probably people in the church saying, who are you to tell us what to do? Who gave you authority, little boy? But Paul encourages him to not let anyone despise him for his youth. And he can achieve this by not by shouting at them or ordering them and telling them to keep quiet, but by setting an example for them in speech and love and conduct and faith. Verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So that is why in our church service, we include the public reading of God's word, right? So in the Lord's day service, we have this because it is commanded. Verse 15, he says, Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. So we need to be constantly growing, and our progress needs to be seen by all. It must be evident. There must be growth in all Christians, especially pastors and elders. So as believers, um, I hope, I, I really hope and pray in some way that School of the Bible has given you better knowledge, uh, better no understanding of the scriptures, but come this time next year, we must know more than we do right now, right? Wherever you are in your knowledge of the Lord and his work and his word, uh, in your walk with the creator of heaven and earth, may you not be there in a year's time, right? But by God's grace, may you look at yourself and see your progress. 
may your brothers and sisters in the Lord look at you and see your progress. And I'll share a secret with you, right? And it's this. The means of progressing is by practicing all these things, all these teachings, and by immersing ourselves in them, as Paul says. Then he says, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So two things are to be done here. Firstly, keep a close watch on yourself, which is your holiness. Secondly, keep watch over your teaching. That is your doctrine. So it's a call to examine ourselves. Have you noticed how we tend to go to either one extreme as Christians? We tend to just focus um, on doctrine. So it's all about theology and doctrine. Uh, but we are not that concerned about evangelizing or discipling or putting into action what we know. You just want to discuss this and debate that and read this book. Right? You focus on your teaching, but not on yourself. On the other hand, the other extreme, other, others will say they don't really care about, about doctrine. Uh, it's all about love. Right? It's all about loving your neighbor, love people and love Jesus. And those people often do a lot more. Right? They go out evangelizing. They do food collections, they feed the hungry, clothe the poor, organize donations and charity work. Very active people, but their doctrine is not good. You must look at yourself, right? Examine yourself and know where you fall on this scale, right? Whether you lean harder towards doctrine or harder towards action. We should all strive for the middle, right? Or we should all strive for both extremes, like the extremely love doctrine, but extremely want to to put your faith into action, right? Um, we, should, we, must, we must value and treasure doctrine and our knowledge of the scriptures, but it must not sit with us because knowledge puffs us up. We should, we should put that knowledge to action. Then it becomes wisdom. Faith without works is dead. Besides, if you don't, if you don't know how to live out your doctrine or how it plays out in the real world, then you actually don't understand it, right? That's the irony there. At the same time, on the other extreme, you can't just say love God, love people without doctrine because you won't know how to love your neighbor without, without, without doctrine, right? Doctrine teaches us how to love God and how to love neighbor, neighbor. And you see that in churches, right? You see that reflected in churches. More reformed churches tend to be solid in doctrine, but they don't really go out and evangelize much. And then you find uh, the Pentecostal charismatics, they are very active, but they do not study God's word and are in serious danger of leading God's people astray, right, and leading them into deception and error. So, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. That's you, yourself, right? Be watching your own heart for um, how you're walking, how you're living out your doctrine and your actual doctrine. So then we get to chapter 5. Um, chapter 5 here, he gives instructions on how to deal with, with older men, with widows, Verse 3 says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing, this is a, this is pleasing in the sight of God. So a, a widow must be supported by her family first. That is the ideal. If not, they should try and the widow should try and remarry. If not, then the church should support her. But it says in verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. And that most likely means that she must come into full-time ministry. She must be enrolled. So essentially, 
bring her into staff in the church so that she can serve the body. It's great to have godly older ladies who are an example to the flock and now have the freedom and time to be teaching and instructing the younger ladies as is commanded um, and to serve the body. And then in closing, uh, chapter 6, go to chapter 6, verse 3, it says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for, contra- for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So think of the prosperity movement who preach exactly this. They preach that godliness is a means of gain. It's quite clear in scripture that um, that should not be the case. You know, they say, if you have enough faith, you will become rich. And Paul says that people who say this are people who are depraved and deprived of the truth. They imagine that godliness is a means of gain. But verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. That is the key, contentment, being content with what you have, uh, with what God has given you. And it was last week when we looked at how evil it is when you complain and when you grumble with your circumstances and how your life is because ultimately you are complaining against God, right? You are saying, God, I do not deserve this or you need to step up or, you know, I'm, I'm more worthy of better gifts from you. But we can see here that the key is contentment because verse, verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the love of money is very destructive. And we have all seen that play out in families, in marriages, in companies, in governments, and in societies. And then he says, verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what, of that which is truly life. So make as much money as you can. Right? Money itself is not the problem. As long as your wealth is for the sake of doing good for others and building up the kingdom of God. right? And storing up for yourself treasures in heaven. That should be the goal. And so we need rich people. right? Churches need rich people. As a church, we need rich people. We need money for ministry, for sending out missionaries, for spreading the gospel in in Joburg, to plant more churches, right? Ministry requires money. So um, what I'd like for you to take from that is, as a believer, work hard and make money, but do it for the glory of God and do it for his kingdom, right? Uh, Don't fall into the temptations. Don't fall into the, the, the desire. Don't give in to the desire to be rich. Right, which is to hoard all the stuff for yourself. Rather, 
um, desire to do good works with what God has given you, right? So, okay, let's end it there. Are there any questions? Are there any comments? Any disagreements? Any thoughts that you guys would like to share? All good, all good, man. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, man. Thanks, by the way. So, there's something that, you know, uh, is going on. If you're in the gender, so you find that there's a, like, you know, what's going on now, he, she, and all this, uh, you know, LGBT and all that. Um, you find that someone who's naturally male, you say, oh, wow, you know, um, I want to change my gender and they do it and then along the way okay, now she is able to do it themselves they've been in contact with the Lord right from that point that they've been in contact with the Lord they realize oh wow I've sinned uh, greatly towards the Lord and his people right um, is that not to be fully devoted to Christ you know just as, as a Christian would do, you know, pursuing uh, Christ-likeness and all that. Uh, this is a man, naturally is a man, but now because of all that, that happened to him and he changed himself, it's a she now. And you spoke about the qualification of being an elder. And along the path, he realized that, hey, actually, you know, um, I'm pretty much uh, required to be an elder. But then this human being, his gender is now, as we know it, naturally so. But if we to go now and try and see how things have changed, we realize, hey, it's a female, or he's a female, I don't know how to put it. Excuse me on that one. Um, how do we now respond to that as a church, and how do we just take take it as it should be, or should we try, and how do you reconcile to that? Um, and bear in mind that this person now, probably clearly, that uh, it's probably more clear that he, he is gifted to be an elder, or, you know, just to be a preacher in the church. But now, because of his gender, I don't know how to put it, but because of his gender, it's something else. So how do you reconcile to that? I hope I, I've got to make myself clear. I don't know if you get me, but... Yeah, so if I'm going to maybe like restate your question, so uh, <clears throat> so you can check if I get it wrong, right, is so someone who was, you know, a man and then got, got surgery, you know, changed gender physically, whatever, and then became a transgender woman and got saved, Right, and then now he's in a church, he's serving the Lord, and now he wants to be, an, or he feels called to ministry. But now he's he's left with the side effects. He's left with that body that he's right. How do we deal with that? Is that you kind of have I summarized? Yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So, um, so you know, I don't, I don't wanna. In, in this in this day and age right you found you find that we've we've reduced men and women to just their body parts right and it's it's the um, one of the the insulting things I find 
for on behalf of women but like you know when when someone says i feel like a woman first of all it's like what does a woman feel like you know if you're a woman you say i feel like a man what does a man feel like you don't know that and you simply reduce people to their body parts like uh, a woman is just you know breast and genitalia and likewise man is just genitalia and that is not true you know like our bodies are and our spirit is much more goes deeper than that right masculinity goes deeper than that femininity goes deeper than that <clears throat> um so one thing that's for sure that's clear is that there's only two genders because god has made them male and female and uh i think this also answers the questions of like intersex people right um they still fall within male or female um and it, i guess it's up to honestly it's up to them you know to decide where they fall right I mean, in scripture, you have the example of the eunuchs who are basically castrated and whatever. But, um, you know, if you take that God has created people, male and female, they fall into that part. And so that that a, a man has castrated himself, you know, or chopped up his body in order to look like a woman, to call himself a woman. And now he's repented or he's now he's a believer and he's called to the ministry. There, there isn't necessarily a qualification to stop him from becoming an elder, right? Because masculinity isn't necessarily within those parts. It's like a, a eunuch, for example, is still a man, right? If it's if it was a male eunuch, um, and so even when you read the qualifications, you know, you you can't say, oh, he's not able to have children, and so he's not qualified for ministry. That is not the case. That is not true. Um, so. My answer to that is, is if I'm going to simplify it, is there, there's male and female, right? Um, it, it is evident, it is clear, um, even when it comes to intersex people, or I think that's the word. I think there's a, another word, like a more scientific word, but um, they fall in either side. And, um, you know, like it's, it's not a, a, I remember like there was this whole pushback they're like yeah what about intersex people this is this, this this first of all like they even make up such a small small number it is like genetically very rare but in the case that it does happen i would say that they fall into either one of the categories and so um you know like that that you are that you lose a body part doesn't make you less of a man you know like if you lose your hand your your arms and you're like disabled and you're not able to work and provide for your family doesn't make you less of a man just because you can't fulfill that call to work and you know um, provide yes that's the word hermaphrodite thank you um, just because you are um, just because now you're physically incapable you know does not mean that ugh, you're not a man now because you can't provide for your wife and kids and blah, 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 you know so that's that's how I, I best uh, see that that issue um, and yeah I think everything else then just falls into wisdom categories you know um in terms of like should this person be an elder what is it like to the witnessing world things like that but i think at a base level there's only two genders there's only male or female right that's how god created them um and yeah so i hope that answers your question okay and then uh, mercy had a question she asked because of sin is it possible for some brothers to stumble even if the women dress modestly, right? Yes. So uh, I think also one thing that I want to clarify with this immodesty thing is uh, there is zero blame on the woman for the man's sin, right? So take, for example, the... And that, that is actually with all sin, 
you know, we may be tempted, but we're all accountable for our sins. So I, as a guy, can't say, ah, you know what, I lusted after that woman. It's because you are stressed this way. No, you lusted because of yourself. It's your heart, right? And you did this. You, 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 in your fallen nature, you chose to um, harbor lust in your heart and you indulge yourself, right? Um, and so it's not the fault of the, the woman whenever a man lusts, right? Uh, the person is, however months, is it still possible for some, even if, yes, so brothers do still sin, even when women are dressed modestly, because um, it's just lust, it's the nature of that lust, you know, um, lusting, it's, it's uh, I want to say it primarily lives in the imagination, you know, you take something and then you can fantasize about it or whatever, 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 right, um, I mean, we can make, we can sin out of anything, you know, when, I forget which theologian he was, you guys will comment me, but he says our hearts are idol factories. We can make, we can sin out of, you know, a, a, we, we can make gods out of wooden objects. We can definitely um, um, sin because of someone who's dressed modestly, right? Um, and so uh, I don't want, and I'm just stating this. I don't want like uh, uh, sisters in the Lord to feel like I'm saying if a brother stumbles, it's because of you. In the same way, you know, women, I've, I've, I've spoken to women and they said that modesty is quite difficult, you know, but you can't, you can't blame your immodesty on the culture. You can't say, I'm tempted to be modest because I see the people are dressing like this or dressing like that. You are fully accountable to the Lord for your sin of immodesty, right? You can't say, oh, but this is the case or this is the case. No, right? You can't blame external things for your internal sin in the same way that a guy um, can't blame a girl who's dressed immodestly for his sin. <coughs> so um, I think that's, I hope that answers the, the question, Messi. But I just had to put a disclaimer there because I wanted to sound like I'm saying, um, yeah. And then Tim M asked about intersex people. I, I hope that kind of clarifies it. Okay. And Tim, I hope like what I was saying earlier clarifies, I think you have you either male or female right that's how god has made it us made us um and then mercy's second question please explain again the meaning of being saved so the meaning of being saved there is is not salvation the word more means uh to preserve so she will be preserved through childbearing and it's in first timothy 3 16 either first timothy 3 3 16 or second timothy 3 ah, second Corinth. why did i say Sorry, it's in 1 Corinthians 3.16 or 2 Corinthians 3.16 where this word for saved here, the only other time it's used that way is in 1 Corinthians 3.16 if I remember correctly. I'm just trying to scroll in the meantime. But that passage says something about being saved through the trial. And I'm just trying to go, okay, I have it. So it's 1 Corinthians 3.16. 14, I'll start at 14, it says, if the work that anyone has built up on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire, right? So it's kind of like the same sentence construction that Paul uses here in uh, 1 Timothy. So the save there in that passage, 1 Corinthians, uh, has the idea of persevering, Right? He will persevere, but only as through fire, as through a trial. That's why I also work into the interpretation of Second First Timothy two there that the childbearing is a trial, right? Which is, it is. 
and childbearing in verse 15 is not just having children it's speaking of like rearing the children as well you know um because uh as we, i think we expanded on this when we looked at genesis 3:15 you know um the the pain that that eve is cursed to and women are cursed to doesn't just speak of giving birth but it just speaks of raising children there will be pain and consequences in raising children so it's quite amazing because when you think back to genesis 3 15 right uh remember adam was made from the soil right and he was made to work the land the soil and so he's cursed with the soil right the the soil will now kind of fight back at him so now it's going to be laborious it's going to be vain to toil under the sun just to get produce the woman was made from the man and now her curse um, is with the man she will desire to rule over them Um, there's going to be consequences in her relationships so that's uh, with the man i think more in a marriage context and also with childbearing so uh, that's just something interesting i was thinking about uh that time but yeah the word there uh, it's a greek word for it's sozo it means like to be preserved so you will be preserved and it just brings in the whole idea of sanctification which is why i said god's natural plan for women is to be sanctified through childbearing um and this is for christian women because it then later says after that it's for those who continue so those who are already saved those who continue in faith love holiness etc etc so yeah um any other questions or thoughts if you guys would want to share any thoughts seems like everyone's okay with that thing so um we leave it there then for today and then sorry just one mercy um my signal is not that good so i'm not sure if you can hear me i'm trying to type the question but the last time i mean we spoke about um uh, women teaching uh in just in a general context and uh yeah we sort of got sort of stuck as to okay now what are what are the parameters now where the women teaches without exercising authority over over men and yeah. i guess it was more on a social sort of um interaction as opposed to like your generic like okay this is you know sunday service and you're teaching or um I don't know, like a, a formal teaching event or something to that effect. Because yeah. again, then again, what do you say about uh, uh, like female teachers in seminary? Um, is that how how does one go go around that? Um, yeah. Oh, thank you. Actually, yeah, I was supposed to. Thank you for reminding me of that. So, um, yeah. So um with with first timothy right it's very important to remember this this is the context is within the church right church setting church service and all that stuff so um it's also like i think it's very important to mention that knowing scripture doesn't say that a man cannot learn from a woman right man man definitely should learn from a woman um because 
the Great Commission, all the commands in terms of proclaiming God's word apply equally to men and women. And so, uh, men, and you see it in scripture as well. You see, I forget their names, but you know, you'll see, I think Lydia is one of them. Um, all these ladies being mentioned as uh, helping some people learn whatever, working alongside Paul, um, etc., etc. Right. So when it comes to then other, yes, I was going to say that this girl was asking about uh, Bible study groups. So then when it comes to different settings, right? Um, I think you, I think there there isn't a prohibition like outside of the church, right? But I think what is wise then is to take the principles of those teachings there, right? So a Bible study, uh, a growth group setting, you know, what kind of teaching will be going on there? You know, if it resembles what goes on in, um, in, a, in, a, in a church, for example, then it's probably not wisest, right? It's not wisest because you, you might be authoritatively instructing people, like, because in a church, we are to obey, right? We are to obey the pastors. We are told to obey our pastors because they are there to shepherd us, etc., etc., and they teach authoritatively. They're like, you do this, do this. This is how you apply this, 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 this. And so in your Bible study, it, the question is then, is it wise to have the sister teaching us? Um, and what kind of teaching is it going to be, right? Because, so you mentioned in a, a seminary, for example, what is going to happen in a seminary? Seminary, it's very much knowledge, right? It's books, it's this, 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 it's doctrines. I'm teaching you doctrines. Like this is, you know, ecclesi ecclesiology, this is soteriology, it's all these other big fancy words. This is what's going on. It's not, it's not necessarily shepherding people. But if it's a growth group, a Bible study, and your leader is going to be there shepherding people, you know, then it's probably not wise to have a, a woman leading that, which is why, um, uh, I guess, well, at Heritage, we have different uh, growth groups, and we, uh, I'm only part of one, so I don't know how others run the others, but generally we have a man, because um, generally we, it's a continuation of the Sunday service, sermon, right, and we're like, okay, this, 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 but um, yeah, so I think that's it, it becomes a wisdom issue because it's not like a it's not a category in scripture. We only have that one category, but I think it's very important for us to take the principles or take wisdom from that, you know, to say, okay, it's fine and let's learn to da 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 da, right? So I think that's that's what I'd say. That's how I'd answer that question. It's like it becomes a wisdom issue. What kind of Bible study? Because not all Bible studies are the same. Some Bible studies, it's literally someone like opening a word thoughts what do you think about this what do you think about this text you know other bible studies it's more like listen today i'm going to teach you about how to deal with money you know in your life how to deal with this or that or that right so there could be um you know uh, a very unwise component to that <clears throat> so i hope that answers the question that's that's what, what i think about it so there, I don't think there's, there's no blanket answer. It's not like the church where you can say, this is forbidden, don't do it. It's more like, as believers, how do we wisely do this, minister the word um, in, a word, in a way that is you know, good for all involved? So yeah, um, I don't know what you think about that, guys. All right. So you're saying there's no like definitive 
No, no. And like you, you should, like you should, I mean, proclaiming God's word is teaching it, right? Apologetics. So remember, we're supposed to give a defense of our faith, right? That's apologetics. So if you, outside of the church, if you, with friends, if you with, um, if, they're, if they're unbelievers, then you witness to, witnessing to them, right? Hopefully. Um, I think I said this last time. It's like, if you have unbelieving friends, your goal is not to correct their theology. Your goal is to get them saved. Just be proclaiming the gospel. If it was fellow believers, it's fellowship around the word. You know, we build each other up with the word. Um, that is a command for men and women. Um, but uh, when it comes to, then I think then, yeah, when it comes to Bible study, you know, it's like you just have to think about that as you guys and be like, okay, um, how am I doing this? Am I, you know, am I maybe going against the principle that I see in scripture or, you know, what's going on there? So, yeah. Yeah, any other questions, guys? Oh, are you guys happy? Okay, I guess we'll leave it there. Um, thanks for coming, guys. Uh, if there's any other questions, please feel free to message me, uh, post a DM, or put it on the group, you know. Don't be afraid to post on the group. So let me close for us in prayer, and before we go our separate ways. Lord, thank you for um, this time, uh, learning through your word, and... Uh, we pray, Lord, that what we may take away from here is that uh, this is the church, and the church belongs to Christ. The church does not belong to man. It does not belong to a pastor. It does not belong to a deacon. It does not belong to any fallen human being. It belongs to the sovereign ruler of the universe. And the church is Christ's bride. And um, the church is not only um, to look at Christ as a savior, but as a Lord, and to, to submit and to obey her, Lord. And so, Lord, may we, uh, be in, may we be churches, may we be bodies of believers who seek to obey you as our Lord, uh, because you have said so in your wisdom, in your counsel, and in your love. Um, you have shown us what is good and what is right and what glorifies you. And so may we be doing these things to honor and glorify you in our lives. Please bless us and please keep us uh, as we go out into um, our weeks, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.